Ashley and I had a had a really encouraging meeting uh, down in Trenton. As you know, as a church, we are we're preparing to plant and to start a new church in Trenton, just right there at the foot of the mountain. And this past week, Ashley and I got the opportunity to go down to the elementary school, the Day County Elementary School, and meet meet with the assistant superintendent. Her name is Sherry Swader, a remarkable woman who has been at work and leading this system for a number of years, over 20 years. And she is a woman of remarkable faith. And so we were, we were going down to spend time with her and just to get to meet people at the elementary school. So as soon as we pulled up at the elementary school, we pulled up in front of a jacked-up Jeep. I think there was a little camo on the side. And in big block pink, pink lettering on the windshield, it said, it said, Backwoods Princess. I knew I was at home whenever I saw that. <laughs> this is my kind of place. And so we go in. You know, I have that sticker on my truck, but anyways. So we go in, and we meet with Sherry. And she's taking us around, and she's introducing us to the, to the administration, to the teachers, taking us into classrooms. And we're, we're sitting and observing these teachers as they're engaging with their, their kids, as they're inspiring them, as they're teaching them. And we were absolutely blown away at the quality of the teachers there, at the health of the school. And one of the things about Sherry is that as she has sought to lead, she sought to, to live out her faith in the school. That is to, to be the best possible administrator and teacher that she can possibly be. And she has fostered this, this atmosphere of, of teamwork, of care for one another, of, of love for the children, of a passion for education. And you could see it literally almost in every classroom. As we walked through the halls with Sherry, we were stopped every two minutes with a child or a teacher coming up and stopping her, giving her a big hug, telling her about their life. And it blew us away that this person, simply by the way that they did their work and lived out the values of Christ in their vocation, we were shocked to see the impact in this school that we had seen from her. It wasn't that she came in with some grandiose vision. It was just simply that she sought to be the absolute best teacher and administrator that she could possibly be, to love those that she was leading and to serve them. And through that, just simply that, there had been impact on an entire school system. We are so very encouraged. You know, as we look at the book of Acts, one of the things we see is that as God is on mission coming to all of these different cities, we see part of His mission is through the message of the gospel to impact cultures, to impact cities, to impact places. And that's what we see in our passages where coming into the city of Ephesus, as the gospel takes root there, we're seeing this impact happening in the city and touching almost every facet of society there. In our passage, we'll basically look at, one, what was this impact on Ephesians? What was happening because of the gospel coming there? Secondly, how? How is it that this message that was announced actually began to transform people and even a whole city. How did that happen? And then we'll ask, how does the gospel impact us? How does it shape us? That's what we'll see in our passage.
So let's jump in in verse 23 as our passage begins. We find ourselves with Paul. This is his third missionary journey. And here he is at the city of Ephesus. In fact, he spends about three years there. As he comes and as he's preaching the gospel, he goes into the synagogues, he goes into the marketplaces. He's preaching the gospel. He's planting churches. And Ephesus is a very important city in the ancient world. It was the Roman capital of the province of Asia. It was a commercial and economic center. Uh, It was a city of great wealth, of great prominence. And it was a city that was famous for something. It was famous for an enormous temple. In fact, this temple was one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. It was an enormous temple to the the goddess Artemis. And Ephesus was kind of like Mecca, how all these Muslims from all over the world, they they pilgrimed to this one place in Mecca. Well, that was kind of happening here in Ephesus. People from all over the world would come into Ephesus to worship the goddess Artemis. Now, She was a fertility goddess. Now, fertility, a fertility god would be one that you would pray to in order to get fertility in your life. The the having of children, uh, agricultural fertility, worshiping this god would bring a great harvest and therefore great economic windfalls for the people. Essentially, she was an economic god. You would worship her and serve her and she would bring prosperity to you. And in the city of Ephesus, as all these people would flow into this city to to make their pilgrimage, they would buy things. They would buy little idols, little statues that had been made of the goddess so they could take her back to their home and continue to worship her. And this created a whole economy, a whole industry. In fact, in the city of Ephesus, it was marked by all kinds of spiritualists, all kinds of diviners and... and, uh, palm readers and sorcerers of every kind. And so it was a, it was a city that draw, drew all kinds of people in for religious purposes, and it resulted in a quite large industry. But one of the things that we see in the book of Acts that happens in Ephesus is that as the gospel comes there, as it is announced, as churches are planted, the whole city begins to be changed. Economics are impacted by the power of the gospel. As the gospel comes there, people that were, that were serving Artemis, that were bowing down to this idol, they begin to be set free. They begin to walk away from the worship of the idol. And that begins to impact the entire economy. The whole city was being impacted. And the scene that we see here, beginning in verse 23, is we, we kind of come in on a, a union meeting. Demetrius is kind of the, the union delegate of the silversmith guild. Okay, So he, he gets all of these silversmiths together that, that through their making of these little idols, they had quite an income. They, they had really built some wealth. They, this thing was, was really moving, this industry. But because of what the gospel was doing in Ephesus, it begins to take a hit on their industry. And so Demetrius calls them together and says, we got to do something about this. You know this business. It's been good. It's been lucrative for us. It's made us rich. And now we're starting to take a hit. And we're taking a hit 
Because of this, this guy Paul, this fellow Paul, as he is coming, he's leading people astray. It's funny to put it that way, right? To look at it from the other end of the spectrum. that he, He's actually saying Paul is leading people astray. Really, he's leading people astray from his industry, his making money. And he says a few interesting things in the passage here. Second part of verse 25, men, you know we receive a good income from this business. Uh, jumping down, well, verse 26, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. So we kind of hear through the words of Demetrius the fact that, that this gospel that is on the march is affecting large numbers of people in Ephesus and in fact, the whole province of Asia. He says it. It's turning the whole world upside down. And it's starting to hit them in the wallet. And so he gets them together and he says, listen, we got to do something about this. we we got to fix this thing. We're, our, our income is in danger. And then he kind of adds on to that. And, you know, the goddess Artemis, her divine maj- majesty is being threatened. But really, that's just a... That's just, a, that's just a covering. You really see what this is about, right? This is really about their money. It's really about the real idol in their community. That's the real issue here. Yeah, he, he kind of... We're, we're seeking to provide all the distraction you need this morning, simply from our family. Where was I? I don't know. Yes, it's all about the money. Show me the money. Yes, so, one of the things you see here is that, yes, they're kind of cloaking it in religious terms, but really what begins to unshake them and to stir this up and what actually leads to a riot in the whole city is the fact that their money and their income and their wealth begins to be threatened. You know, one of the things the Bible wants to show you over and over and over is that whenever the gospel comes to change someone and to impact someone, do you know what it most clearly does? It changes their relationship to money. We see that over and over in the book of Acts. As the early church, this community, is turning to Christ and being united and formed with one another, Luke over and over is showing us the effect that it was having on their money. They're coming together and they're liquidating assets. Nobody does that. Everybody knows you don't touch your assets, right? But they didn't get the memo. They're coming together and if somebody was in need, they're saying, well, what can I sell? I got some land. I got some property. And they would sell it and bring it and lay it at the apostles' feet so that it might be distributed to those in need. How un-American were these people? Right? The gospel was hitting them. How did you know it was changing them? Because their relationship to money was changing. We see another example in the previous passage here. Whenever the gospel comes to Ephesus, one of the things that Luke notes begins to happen is that all of these sorcerers and diviners and spiritualists, they begin to turn to Christ and get converted. Do you know what they did? They took all of their 
books and scrolls and trinkets, all of these things that they had accumulated, these ancient things that they would use to practice their sorcery, these extremely expensive items, whenever they converted to Christ, they came together and had a huge bonfire. And then Luke goes on to show us just how much money that was worth. He said whenever you add the full value of everything together that they had burned, that they had just thrown away, it added up to 50,000 drachmas. Drachma was kind of a, a day's wage. You know, if you do the math, you know what that was worth? $10 million. Are you kidding me? I mean, wouldn't you think, okay, I can't practice sorcery anymore. I've come to Christ. But all of these things that I've accumulated, well, they're worth something. Well, I'm going to try to sell these things. Just get my money out of it. I'll walk away from it. That was not their thinking. They were like, this stuff is trash. And they burned it and were incredibly sacrificial with their money. Luke wants us to see that whenever the gospel begins to transform, it hits at the root of that most fundamental idol, our money. It begins to transform their relationship with the money. So in Ephesus we see that the power of the gospel as people are coming to Christ, as churches are being planted, the whole city and culture is impacted. The whole world's being turned upside down, says Demetrius. A riot breaks out in the city. What we see here is that the gospel was impacting all of culture. Not just individual people, but absolutely everything. That's what we see in the book of Acts that God's, the aim of God's mission is not just to save individual souls, though it absolutely does that. But it is His mission to redeem all things, all of culture, peoples, places, industries, economics. The scope of His redemption is everything. And the book of Acts shows us that once it comes, justice comes. Freedom comes. It impacts society. So a question for us as we see this in Ephesus is do we see the impact happening in us? Is the power of the gospel changing you? Is it impacting our community through us as a church? Is our society, is our culture being impacted in the way that we see here? Now, one of the encouraging things that Eric and I and many of the elders and deacons get to experience is that we get to hear all of the stories of the things that are happening in all of your lives. You don't get to hear all of the stories, but we get to hear it. We get to hear how people are being changed, how many of you are you're growing in your faith. The truth of the gospel is becoming more real in your life. Marriages are being healed. People are being set free from things in their life. We get to see those things happening. We get to see you. We get to see your faith impacting all of your relationships. We get to see it impacting your work. We get to celebrate as a community things happening like couples in our, in our church that are taking foster children into their home. It's actually happening here. Kids that are unwanted who have... No parents are being taken into loving homes. It's happening. We have people, families in our congregation that are adopting children here and all over the world. In fact, Katie, Katie Conrad right now is in Uganda 
adopting a child, her and John. These things are happening in our life. Culture's being impacted. We get to see the ways in which your faith is impacting your work. How some of you, the way that you're treating your employees, it's changing. You're starting to, to care more about them than their productivity. We're getting to see how so many of you who are teachers, we have a number of teachers in our congregation, from the college level all the way down to the elementary level. We get to see and hear how the gospel at work in your life is moving you to inspire your children, to care for them, to teach them, to do good for them, and to see them flourish. We get to see how folks in our congregation are walking alongside those who are broken down in so many different ways. Those who are poor and widowed and have nobody else to care for them. Folks in our congregation that are just doing life along with them, providing for their needs. It's something to celebrate. See, the fact of the matter is, God is at work in our midst. And it's beautiful to see. And it's actually why we as a church are about to step out and to plant a new church in Trenton. It's because we are being moved by what God's doing here. We're being moved about what might happen as we take the gospel to a community. The gospel's already there and already at work, but He's calling us to be a part of this. You know, our hopes, our hopes and our longing is that all of the things that we see happening among us in our community, that it might happen through this new church in Trenton. That all of this might be reproduced in that place. That's why we're going. The thing that we see is that God is impacting our culture through us. God is at work, just like we see in the book of Ephesians. But another question arises, how does this actually happen? How is it that a message that gets announced actually changes a whole city? How does that work? Well, I think we see it in the passage. Essentially, this is how it was happening. The message of the gospel was being applied to the idols of the people and the culture in that place. They were taking the message of the gospel and applying it right down at the root of what was shaping that culture, of what they were putting their hopes in, of what they were serving. It was being applied right down there to the core. We see that right in what Demetrius says here. Is Demetrius kind of rehearses the gospel message. It's kind of interesting. Luke puts the message of the gospel on the lips of Demetrius. Of course, he he cannot perceive it. But notice the irony of what he says here. Verse 26, second sentence. He says, talking about this guy Paul and the, the, the lunacy of this message that he's preaching, he says, can you believe this? He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. Now think for a minute of the irony of that statement. He's mocking it. He's saying, can you believe what this guy's going around saying? He's saying that the little gods that we make, you know, these little statues and that we bow down to and that we sell for money, he's actually trying to say those aren't real gods. That's a bit self-evident, don't you think? Isn't that obvious? How can something I make be God? How can something I make protect me? How can it give me security? How can it give me meaning? 
How can it do any of those things? The obvious answer is it can't. But wouldn't you think this would be self-evident? No. It wasn't. And it's not to us either. So the reality is idolatry is irrational. It doesn't make sense. It's not just a matter of the confusion of the mind. It's a commitment of the heart. It's things that we attach our hearts to for meaning, and it makes no sense because they are not God's. But here's what Paul was doing. Demetrius kind of sums up the gospel message that Paul was coming and preaching. Paul was coming into a city. We see this over and over. And the first thing he would do is notice the idols of the culture. Notice the things that this particular set of people, this city, the things that they were putting their hopes in, the things that they were chasing after, the things that they were trusting in. And he would notice those things, and here's what he would say. Folks, those things are not actually God's. They're empty. They cannot deliver what you're hoping in them for. They're not God's at all. But here's the wonderful news. The one true God, the maker of all things. He knows you. He knows your name. He knows your address. He knows all of the things that you have done in your life. And remarkably in light of that, He is drawn towards you. He is pursuing you even now. And He wants you to come to Himself. He wants you to know Him. He even gave up His very own Son for you. And if you will embrace Him, you will receive forgiveness of sins, you will receive union with Him, you will become His child, and you will have a future inheritance that can never be taken away. It was unbelievably good news. And as Paul was coming and announcing this, right at the heart of the things that they were running after, People were being set free. It was changing people. It was moving them. The city was being impacted. So a question arises for us. Why is there such little change in the church today? I mean, yes, we see, we see good things happening. God is at work. But at the same time, why is there such little change or impact on the culture around us? Dallas Willard once said, the great scandal of the church is the lack of change and transformation in the pew. What's not connecting here? What's not firing? That so often in our culture, our faith is not shaping all of our life. It's not shaping the culture around us. What's not firing, especially as we look at the book of Ephesians? Well, I think it's essentially this. We're failing to apply the truth of the gospel to the roots of the idols in our life, the things that we're really hoping in. You see, what, what is the easiest thing to do is to see Christianity as a list of truths to be ascended to. Yes, I believe that that's true. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that He died for me. I believe all of that stuff, so I'm good. Or to see the Christian life as just a lifestyle to be adopted. Yes, I will, I will begin to do these things and not do these things, and, and therefore I'm good, right? But you see at the same time, and here's the problem. The heart's not being changed. The things that we, sh- that we wrap our hearts around, the things that we trust in, that we run after, they're not being touched. 
It's just externals. But we see here, Paul's going right down to the root of that thing right there that your whole life is oriented around, the thing that that terrifies you if you might lose it, the thing that preoccupies your thoughts. Yeah, 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 that's the thing that's not a God. And here is the good news of what the one true God has done. You see, he was taking it to the root. I've gotten to know a, a friend in Trenton, a businessman down there, who's really got a remarkable kind of story. Um, he was in the, the, worked for the state patrol for years, um, owns a, like a probation business now there in Trenton. And, and uh, he, he talks about his life, you know, having grown up in the church, and he said, listen, I was, I was always in church. I was, I was a front row kind of guy. Whenever the doors were open, I was there. I was a deacon in the church. Everybody would look at me and say, hey, that is a godly man right there. But he said, you know, in my heart, whenever I was doing all that good, right stuff on the outside, in my heart, I despised the people that were on the outside of the church. I despised the people that couldn't get their life together, that had made a mess of their life. In his police work, he was always interacting with these people strung out on drugs or or abandoning their children, or, or prostitutes, or all this kind of stuff. And he said, I hated them. And the whole time he looked so good on the outside. And then one day, he came home from work. Their children had long been out of the home, and he hears the bathtub running in the bathroom. So he wonders, what's going on here? So he walks into the bathroom, and his wife is down on her knees, bathing a little baby. In a minute, it hit him what she had done. She had taken a little drug baby into their home, a little foster baby that had been abandoned. And he was seized with anger. And he said, he said, I got all over. He said, he said, woman, that baby will break your heart. That was his words. He said, you are to take that thing back. We don't have space for this in our life. You see, he had built a life that had no room for what God wanted to do in his life. He had built a life that had a certain kind of priority. His idol was not, his God was not God. It was his comfort. It was his lifestyle. It was his way of being. And that baby was a threat to it. And she was just crushed. And she was crying. And she said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll take it back. I'll take it back. She said, will you hold it while I go get its clothes? She said, he said, and he describes it this way. And he said, the moment that baby hit my hands, I got struck by lightning. In a moment, the true realities of who Jesus is and all that he did hit him like a mat truck. In a moment, the realities of mercy and compassion and brokenness, love, it hit him with the full force. In a second, all of his understanding of Christianity was reoriented and he began to see what Jesus was really like and what he was now being called to be like. He describes that as his conversion. You see, he had idols in his life. Though he had a religious life, though he was doing all the right stuff, though he could have gone toe-to-toe on any kind of doctrine, it hadn't penetrated his heart. You see, because there were other things in his heart. There were other things that were his real God, the things that he was really serving and trusting in. You know what? It didn't look bad from the outside. But in that moment, God broke in on that man. So, 
The question for us is, what is idolatry for us? You know, idolatry is not little statues that ancient people would bow down to and worship. It's not even in the scriptures just that. It's described as all kinds of different things. It's essentially this. It's any time you make something other than God ultimate in your life. It's any time you make something, and it can be absolutely anything, and the tricky thing about it is that it's often good things. When good things become ultimate things, and we begin to look to them for security, for ultimate fulfillment, for life, for identity, for meaning, all of those things, you see it becomes your functional God. Because only the one true God can offer all of those things. Only He can protect. Only He can provide. Only He can deliver ultimate satisfaction. But yet, as Calvin once said, our hearts are idol-making factories. And so we're always setting our deepest affections on things, created things that we're looking to for meaning and life. And oftentimes it's all kinds of good things in our life. Reputation, it's money and stuff and hobbies and toys. It's, it's an identity. It's the way that you look. It's, it's even our children. I hesitate even to name that. It's one of the bigger ones in our culture. It's hard to even say out loud. I know you won't like it. I don't like it. But so often we make our children the center of our life. And you might not even know what is the problem with that statement. We begin to look to them to bring us meaning and hope and life. And we live vicariously through them. And we set all of our hopes on how they turn out. You see, in doing this, it will ruin you. And it will ruin them. That's what idols do. They enslave, they take, and they do not deliver. We become prisoners. We become enslaved by them. So how do you identify idols? One of the quickest ways to know you've got idols in your life is this, a coldness towards God. It's like the telltale sign. Last week, Eric said, one of the fundamental promises of Scripture to God's people is God saying this, I will be with you. I will give you myself. How does that strike you? Is that truth the controlling joy and peace in your life? Probably not. Why? Because something else is. Whenever we have idols in our life, it crowds out God. We have no capacity to see His supreme worth. We have no capacity to see Him as far more beautiful and satisfying than anything else this world could ever offer. It's seen in a coldness. And how do we identify it in our life? Well, just look at your life. Look at the things that you tend to surround, that you tend to make the center of your life, that you spend all of your time doing, the things that you pursue, the things that occupy, occupy your mind. What are the things in your life that most give you a rush and a thrill and make you alive? See, this is the language of ultimate things. Or even to look at the emotions, the most powerful emotions in our life. What makes you angry? You know what drives our anger? Most of the time, it's that something that has become ultimate in my life is being threatened, and I'm angry. Or fear and anxiety, the things that keep you up at night, an idol is being threatened. Or even depression. 
What drains you of a sense of hope? What do you lose or that is threatened in your life that you have the feeling of, what purpose do I have going forward in life? See, these are all ways to begin to see what are the real gods in my life. I'll close with this. How are we transformed? How do we actually be changed? Well, I think essentially this. First of all, expose the idols. See, that's what Paul was doing. As he was coming into the city, he would begin to identify them and say, hey, those aren't real gods. He would expose them as empty as they were. And that's got to happen in our life. We've got to begin to look at those things in our life that control us, that dominate us, and you've got to look them in the face and say, you are not God. You are offering things to me, and I'm serving you, and you can't deliver You're empty. It's called repentance. You've got to turn from them and see this is empty. But maybe even more significantly, you've got to see Christ as far more beautiful and satisfying and secure than any idol in your life. You've got to come to see Him as far more enticing than the things that we chase after in our life. There's a technique that every good parent learns very early on in the process. Because one of the things you'll notice about children, right, if you have children, is that this whole idol thing, it comes, batteries included, right from the beginning, right? I mean, they very quickly, constantly are setting their hearts on things that they must have. And every time we sit down for dinner, you can see this play out, every time. Every time we sit down from dinner... All three of them want the same cup. Now, there's nothing special about the cup. All three of them want the same plate. All three of them want the same chair, even though all the other chairs look the same. They want the same thing, and they must have it. And it becomes so ultimate that they're filled with rage, right? They're filled with anxiety if they get it, that the other one's going to get it. You know, they're, they're filled with depression. They're undone if they can't have this thing. And it creates no small terror throughout the house, right? I hate hearing children scream. But every good parent knows how you fix this problem real quick. How do you fix it? How do you just flip that switch immediately? Well, you offer them something they want far more. You know, you come in in that moment and you say, you want a candy bar? You want some dessert? You want to watch a movie later? I do this. Ashley doesn't do this. Right, yeah. Do you want to to watch a movie later? You know? You offer them something that is far more wonderful. And what happens in that moment? They totally forget about the cup. They don't even know anything about it. They're at peace. They're filled with joy and anticipation. Right? You've got to replace the idols in your life with something far more enticing. It's the only way out, I promise you. Unless Christ becomes far more satisfying and wonderful and beautiful to you, really at the deep places of your heart, you cannot turn from your idols. They'll own you. You can't get away from them. I mean, Georgia football, I wish I could get away from it this morning. You've got to see something far more beautiful. 
And what begins to happen in your heart? That thing that's become such a fixation, it just loses its power and its luster. And you actually become rightly oriented to those things in your life. We must see the surpassing beauty and worth of Christ to be set free from idols. Let's pray.